Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This week on The Big Show, we sit down with filmmakers behind the upcoming animated comedy, Ralph Breaks the Internet, Rich Moore and Phil Johnston, as well as sitting down with the composer of Green Book, Chris Bowers. Plus, we'll have entertainment news and reviews of the latest films, including Overlord, The Grinch, and the front runner, all on the latest episode of Keeping It Real with Film Gordon. Let's go. And welcome to uh, what is, should be a jam-packed edition of Keeping It Real with Film Gordon. I am Tim Gordon. It's the first week of November, officially, in the, at the box office. And as you can tell from our show opening, there are literally about seven or eight movies that are opening uh, this week. We're going to literally uh, only review four of those. And that's counting streaming services as well, because Netflix is now in the awards game. Uh, so we will look at all of these movies as we come down the home stretch. Uh, at the end of this month, I think all of the the first round of critics awards uh, balloting will go out for all of the uh, organizations, uh, including the organization that we have here. Uh, Wilson Morales, who's going to join us momentarily, also uh, is the president of an organization. Um, I have another organization. I mean, it, it is a really busy time. Uh, during award season and this uh, season will last probably through the end of February as we gear up uh, for the 90th Academy Awards which takes place at uh, the end of February I think or early March I'm not really sure so all of that is coming up Uh, as I said we have interviews with a lot of movies that are coming out uh, a little later on this month Uh, we'll sit down with the filmmakers Rich Moore and Phil Johnston from Ralph Breaks the Internet Chris Bowers who had an opportunity to meet who's the composer and body double for Mahershala Ali in Green Book will also join us a little later on and we'll have those film reviews coming up But without any further ado, it is time for us to go to New York and bring in our show correspondent and editor of BlackFilm.com, my friend, my colleague, Wilson Morales. Welcome back to the show, my friend. Hi, it's good to be on. Hey, man. Um, It's been a very busy week, as you heard me say in the opening, Wilson. But um, BlackFilm.com, the party doesn't stop, man. What is going on in Black Film this week? Well, you know, you've got a number of things happening. You've got whether it's a film coming out and they're showing clips and photos and featurettes and so forth, or you've got announcements of news, um, you know, just announced that Spike Lee's going to do a third ad- uh, an ad- adaptation of a play, uh, Frederick Douglass Now, and starring in it is uh, Roger Genevieve Smith. And together, they've worked together, like, numerous times on film, on stage. Spike has adapted... Uh, 
couple of plays that he's done, so he's going to bring this to the big screen. All righty. Um, yeah, man, I mean, and, and, and I, I'm sure with Spike Lee and having worked with Roger Gimbert-Smith, those two go back, man. I think the first thing I ever saw, the two of them together, and you could probably correct me if I'm wrong, um, he was smiley and, um, and, and do the right thing. I'm not sure if he was in either Jungle Fever or She's Gotta Have It, which I don't, not Jungle Fever, uh, School Days, or She's Gotta Have It. I don't think. I think that was probably his first time working with Spike. Is that accurate? I don't know because, you know, you think about it now. It's like We know who he is now. But back right. then, you know, sometimes you can go back and revisit a film and you see a face that like, oh, I didn't know he was in that because, you know, they weren't big at that time. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I do. I, I remember because I watched those first five Spike Lee joints as he, he referred to them. And those things are all iconic to this day. Not all of them are really great. But um, I remember the spirit that those were made. And during that time period, there wasn't a lot of us. And Spike was knocking it out the box early in his career. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know if you mentioned it last, but if not, that their universe is going ahead and doing an Inside Man 2. You know, I don't know if you heard that last week. Yeah. Uh, in which, you know, Spike is not produced. He's not involved. Neither is Denzel. What, what people do not realize is that that's the only film in Spike's career where he was only the director of hire. He wasn't even an executive producer on it. So he had no say in terms of inside man, period. Right. Which is why they can go ahead and just do another another actor. Oh, my God. Well, all right. I take it back, man. Um, I was wrong. Uh, Roger Ginver Smith was actually in school days. He was one of the brothers online uh, with Spike. He played Yoda. Now, I do remember yeah. that. It was a bunch of those guys uh, that made their debuts in those films. Um, I forget the other actor um, by name, but it was a guy that you and I both know who was a New York actor. Uh, I forget what his name was, who also appeared. So, yeah, Spike, man, I mean, I've got to give him a lot of credit, man. I mean, I know today in the current climate of the Barry Jenkins and the Ava DuVernay's and the Steve McQueen's and all of the other upcoming uh, African-American actors who are out there putting in work, that dude really was the foundation for the modern era, man, who, who literally kind of inspired all of these actors uh, for them to do the things that they are doing, man. Yeah, you know, and not to make this a spiky thing happening right now, but, you know, you, you got to remember that he was being consistent almost every year, almost, almost every two years um, at the time, uh, you know, just putting something else out. You know, it was him and, and Woody Allen, and, you know, the, together those two guys were they're different films to, uh, totally, but they were the only two guys consistently putting out films. Now, I see you also did an interview uh, with an actor that we're going to talk to in a couple of weeks. Uh, I, I can't even re- pronounce his name, but but the guy. Mamadou? Who, yeah. Who, no, I'm talking about the guy from uh, Creed 2, uh, the boxer who is the opponent of. Yeah, um, I don't even know his name. I think he goes by Big Nasty. That's a lot. Yeah. Of, he, he tried to explain to me how to pronounce it, and I was like. Yeah, man. Uh, okay, whatever you just said, I, I'm not gonna even gonna try to mess with that. But yeah. um, so, like, I'll be going to Philly this weekend to talk to the cast of Creed <laughs> Two. So, hopefully, uh, not only do I get to talk to them, but if there's any uh, time, I'll go stop by the Rocky Steps. <laughs> now, have you met Have you met this guy before? No, I haven't. He, I don't think anyone's met he, him before. He is huge. That's all I can tell you. And when I say huge, I'm talking about I stood next to him. He's huge. Only other time mm-hmm. I, I stood next to a guy that big who's actually bigger was Shaquille O'Neal 
where it just made me feel like I was an infant child, man, standing next to that huge. <laughs> but I'm just saying all that to say, man, that uh, he's a real cool dude. And uh, I look forward to uh, what you bring back from that because uh, Michael B. Jordan right now is hot. Brother's hot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, speaking of hot, I don't know if you saw it. Uh, Idris Elba was just named as People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive. Uh, becoming the third black actor or third black male to uh, make that list since they started doing the list in 1985. The other two were The Rock, which was, I think, two years ago, and then Denzel Washington was, like, nearly over 10 years ago. All right, man. You know, I just had a problem with that pivot there. You're talking about thinking about something hot. He's hot for the ladies, man. He's hot for us, man. I mean, he interests <laughs> us, man. Like, hot. <laughs> Idris, I mean, we met Idris before. Idris is a cool dude. Um, I, I think I was surprised that he won this year, that he hadn't won previously because Idris has been like, ladies have been lusting after Idris, man, for like the last six to seven years, man. I'm like, he just won? He just yeah, became? That's, always, that's, that's a decision by committee. It's never just one individual who has to make that. It's a decision by committee, and you have to wait to see like how it plays out when you're in, the, in these meetings. All right. I mean, well, congratulations to Idris Elba, man. Um, I'm still holding out hope that at some point that the Broccoli family get tired of Daniel Craig and decide that they want to put Idris Elba in the tuxedo and let him be James Bond. I think it would be great for the franchise. I don't think it's going to happen. You know, I, don't, I don't think. You know, I think even when uh, Pierce Brosnan was ready to hang it up, you know, we all had, I think, you know, everybody had their choice of who should be it, and Daniel Craig was more of a surprise to everybody because no one saw that coming. So I think, you know, as much as people want Idris, you know, I think they're just, you know, they don't want, I don't think the broccolis want to be forced by society, by, you know, social media in terms of who they should be picking. Well, I mean, you don't have to be forced, and it's and it's going to be hard to say that, you know, with diversity, there's big business because the Bond movies do make money. But I think it would be a welcome change to see somebody else with some color in this role. I mean, if Michael B. Jordan is going to be Superman at some point, Bond can be a black dude. But why, well, my thing is, you know, these guys, you know, should be able to, you know, find their own franchise, you know, build it. You know, we, we built Bond. Say the, the audience built Bond over the years. Why can't we just do that with another individual and let it carry it out? Look how far you know. Granted, Denzel's over sixty years old now, but look what he's done with the uh, with the uh, um, equalizer films. You know, yeah. if you had started somebody in that in their twenties, you never knew how far they could take it. You know, what's interesting, um, as I remember, you know, now we're looking at all of the, the billions of dollars that are made in these superhero franchises, and I remember Will Smith made Hancock. And I never I'm, I'm still trying to figure out why he never sought to kind of to continue that story. I mean, the first one made big money. I think it made like maybe 300, 350 million worldwide, which is probably not on par with a Marvel or a DC film. But that's a really huge amount of money. At that time, it was huge. Yeah. At that time, it was done before the Marvel franchise right. built up. And that was huge money. But you also got to remember, you know, Will Smith is an actor. Who knows how much participation this production company had? And then at the same time, you know, when you do, when a movie like that does that well, you now have to, and if he doesn't find for a second film at the first, you know, you have to double his payday afterwards. That's why back in the day, you know, you saw guys like Jim Carrey, you know, on the fortune they making like uh, $25 million a film. Yeah, it's very true. To, you know, nowadays they lock you in to like, okay, we're going to give you $5 million here, $5 million there, as opposed to like, oh, you know, a lot of more money you see now now they're starting based on the photo we saw earlier this week on Twitter and Instagram I guess they're starting a production on Bad Boys 3 right 
Right, right. I checked that out, man. I mean, so there's some other properties that Will can revisit. Got about a minute left in this segment, Wilson. And before we get out of here, it would be uh, a disservice to you if I did not acknowledge that your birthday is coming up this weekend. Uh, we want to thank you publicly for all the work that you have done, not just over the years for this show, but specifically since we've been here at DC Radio. Uh, you're consistent. You're here every week. You're banging these interviews out, man. You're letting people know what's going on out there. Good job, my brother. Enjoy your weekend. I hope to see you this weekend, at least for a hot minute. Yeah, it should be around on Saturday, you know, Sunday, actually, uh, to see you guys, you know, hang out. At least we can talk physically as opposed to over the phone. I uh, will take a picture and say uh, hello to Charles while, you know, <laughs> make sure we. <laughs> <laughs> so, Wilson, tell people where they can follow you and read your content. You can find it over at blackfilm.com. It's the same words you use for Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. Man, the most selfish man in radio, man. He is really upset with you right now. Charles Kirkland will be all right. Thanks, Wilson. <laughs> Take right, care, man. I'll talk to you later. All right, man. Take care. All right, and of course, that was Wilson Morales uh, with BlackFilm.com, who joins us at the top of every show. Um, we're going to take a break right now. When we come back, uh, we're going to be joined by the filmmakers who are going to give you guys Ralph Breaks the Internet. You guys, of course, are listening to The Big Show, keeping it real with Film Gordon here at DC Radio 96.3 HD4. We'll be right back. And welcome back to the show Coming up a little later on We'll review all of this week's new releases Now our next guests are two rising stars In the animation universe And back in 2012 Rich Moore and Phil Johnston Collaborated on the Oscar winning animated feature Wreck-It Ralph The two would later collaborate on the billion dollar Zootopia Now they're back for the sequel Ralph Breaks the Internet now, frequent collaborator and colleague Travis Hobson and I sat down with the witty pair for a fun-filled romp and look at their latest film, as well as their plans for Zootopia, which they said they were going to call Tootopia, and characters that didn't make the final cut in their latest. But Ralph breaks the internet. Thank you. Good job for both of you guys. Thank you. I very, I very much enjoyed this film a oh, lot. Oh, cool. Um, I'm sure Travis. I can't speak for him, but he has the look of someone who enjoyed it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I did have a well stated expression. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll lead in. Yeah, um, after the success of the first one, and you guys were sitting down thinking about the creation of mm -hmm. where would you take this character, a thought that what you guys came up with as a concept actually worked really well. Mm. 
and you were not only able to execute it, but opening up the vaults of the parent company. <laughs> yeah. You guys <laughs> had a huge playground to play in. Yeah. How much how much fun was that in the creative process and then after you guys were able to kind of get everything together in order to execute this story? It's kind of like going into a museum or something and seeing like, oh wow, this stuff is so cool. Wait a minute. We can touch this. Yeah, <laughs> we, right, can, right. Like, we can handle right, right, this. Yeah, right, right, right. We can play with this. Are you kidding me? You know, it it, it was uh, in my thirty years working in animation. I mean, there's nothing like it. You know, I mean, these are iconic characters. You know, and what we wanted to do was satirical. You know, and to be kind of given the keys to the kingdom and, and told like, you know, we, we like what you're doing with this and we, we, we feel like why, why not have a little fun, you know, with our characters. It was an amazing experience to, to be able to kind of, and, and we talk about it as kind of joking around with your family, you know, that, (laughs) that you can kind of have fun, um, satirizing, those that you love, you know, and I think that's the best kind of satire right, that, right. that comes from like deep love and respect for the subject matter. As opposed and, to malice. Yeah. Know, yeah. Like, yeah like, <laughs> just like kind of like. That's a different kind of movie. <laughs> like, Bill was saying, it's kind of like, you know, how he makes fun of his family or kind of like pokes fun at like his dad or I would right, poke right, fun right. at my mom or something. It's like. You know, you, you do it with kind of love and, and knowledge of what those people are like, you mm-hmm. know, and I think, I think it comes across, you know, um, well in the movie right. that way. How did you guys come up with your vision of what the internet would look like? Like, when I was watching mm-hmm. it, it kind of felt like a little bit of Summer Wars, a little bit of, yeah. a little bit of uh, Ready Player One, mm-hmm. but it was still its own unique thing. So, I guess kind of talk to me about how you guys envisioned it. Yeah, I mean, that it was very challenging to be honest because we had this idea oh a router will get plugged in and you know ralph and vanelle deal go to the internet and screw something up and haha won't that be funny like i love that first scene where they, back in like, 2013 yeah. right, right, right 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 i like i love that scene where they go in and they expect to find the internet and yeah. it's just like an empty, empty space <laughs> yeah. and that's kind of where our brains were when we first came up with the idea okay we start with an empty router then what yeah. but um we do a ton of research on these movies and um the the more we did the more we realize the internet is kind of like a city, kind of a mm. badly designed mm. city, to right. be honest, because um, at the very bottom, like Rome or, or Istanbul, you have kind of the ancient city. Mm. And then rather than raise it or integrate, you know, a new version of the city, what they did is they just built on top of it and then built on top of that and built on top of that. And so we kind of thought of it that way. Mm. And once that metaphor emerged in our minds that it's, it's like an ancient city where the old is at the bottom and at the top you find, you know, the modern skyscrapers of Google and Amazon and eBay and whatever else like that. And so way down at the bottom you find Netscape Navigator and things yeah. that maybe aren't as familiar. <laughs> the, Friendster. <laughs> the Friendster line got me. Yeah. The Friendster line, yeah. the Friendster line like, I think I might be the only one who got yeah. that Because oh, I remember using it. So like, hey, Friendster. Okay. I tell you it has been a while. <laughs> so wait a minute. So I think Interestingly enough, um, aside from the relationship that they have and like mm-hmm. all of the fun that the film has, 
you actually even incorporate what I call kind of, I guess, universal themes when you talk about yeah. the theme of friendship, right? Mm-hmm. And you're looking at insecurities in a way, which yeah. you actually took into the um, How challenging was that? having the balance of all the fun that you guys have having, right. as you talked about the, the aspect of having the ability to play with all these toys, mm-hmm. but also kind of infuse the story with something that, that will grip like more of the parents who are going to be taking yeah. these kids mm-hmm. to the films. I mean, these stories are nothing without that heart. Yeah. And, yeah. and the, with all the visuals, all the sophistication of the animation... If there's not a mm-hmm. simple, to your point, universal story with themes that we can all relate to, then then the movies simply don't work. Yeah, and like Phil said, that we did begin with a notion of, well, what if that thing gets plugged in, they go to the internet, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay, but why why the internet? Why why are we doing this, you know? Mm-hmm. Why why when we buttoned up the first movie should we do a sequel, you know, because it seemed like it, it it sealed up really nice at the end. You know, he finally found a friend, Ralph did. You know, he never had one, finally got one, um, and he, he feels good about himself. And at the end of the first movie, the last line is, if that little kid likes me, how bad can I be? You right. know, mm. and like, that is so sweet, you know. But, but then as we started to, think about it he said well that's not the healthiest attitude to have in life mm. you know that he's defining himself like what Penelope thinks of him right. you know so yeah. what if she doesn't like him someday you know now where's that land him you right. know that right. that's where that insecurity purity, came from you know? realized he still had a lot of insecurity mm-hmm. so, right. so that was kind of the beginnings of okay there's there is another story in here you know he he did not, you know, mature to to become an authentic human being. You know, he he is he is still putting a lot of um, worth, you know, on what other people think of him. Um, so he, but they still have this friendship, you know. So what happens if we start to drive a wedge through that? To what lengths will this guy go to try and hold on to this friend? Right. Um, and that's where we started to explore these themes of like these kind of codependency and you know toxic relationships you know where one person thinks that they own the other person that if, if they're not doing what I think they should do then I'm I'm upset and I need to get in there and manipulate and you know and almost act as this person's god in a way you know mm-hmm. so and once we started thinking of it that way we thought, okay, there. It feels like there's the germ of, you know, uh, an idea here that 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 does feel universal, mm-hmm. you know, and and is something that I think it is kind of important to talk about these these things right now. You mm-hmm. hear people saying like, "You're my best friend forever." It's like, well, is that real? You know, if you're not like working on that relationship, do we really believe that when things change that? We're going to be best friends forever, you know, um, and it's always going to be exactly like it is right now. So that that was what we really wanted to explore, and we were kind of emboldened by working on Zootopia be, because it, it felt like the the audience is hungry for for more substance in films like this. 
You know, it's it's okay in an animated film to talk about things that, that normally wouldn't be the subject matter of, of a cartoon. Right. In the first film, uh, I believe you directed that one solo. Yeah. This one, you guys were collaborating. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. How did your working relationship kind of, how did that change or evolve as you guys came together as co-directors this time? Um, well, I, writing the first one mm-hmm. in, in Zootopia, and so this is our the third time mm-hmm. I've worked with Rich, and he's uh, we're great great partners, mm-hmm. I think, and and it's always been a really open collaboration, mm-hmm. and uh, he's a obviously a great director, but also a very democratic um, director in that I never felt relegated to just the writer, quote unquote. It was yeah. it was always yeah. a, a much freer, open collaboration. And um, so, yeah, when when this one came along, um, he, uh, uh, I don't know why, why well, you, why, I mean, <laughs> you know, I think on the first movie on, on Zootopia, Phil was yeah. doing more than just writing, mm, you know. Okay. Um, I'd give him he, shoulder rubs. Yeah. I'd, I'd get him a sandwich every now and then. And I appreciated that. Yeah. It worked out. But it was yeah. a long, it was a long kind of sandwich. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I felt like, you know, he's doing more than, than just writing. Yeah. He's, he's a big part of, you know, making the movie... And it felt like he should have a directing credit. So really, the 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 job that we're doing has not changed. I just feel like he's getting the the credit that he should be at this point. So we're talking about Zootopia. Uh, uh, is that up next for you guys? Are you guys crafting some ideas of where to take that story and that arc? Tootopia. Tootopia. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I personally haven't. This this has been three pretty intense years yeah. making this movie, and the main thing I'm thinking about is a nap. When it's done. So I, I haven't thought about. I, I haven't thought about Zootopia. We, we've been kind of running at this pace since. God, man. Two solid years. Two, well, a, but even before that, was Zootopia was like solid. ball of. 14, you know, the, yeah. the, the there has been, been a break. As soon as Zootopia was done, it's like, okay, let's yeah. jump back on to Ralph, you wow. know. Well, come on, man, don't play. Come on, I take know, a nap, take a month like, off. Yeah. Zootopia. You can sleep when you're dead. <laughs> as, a, as a video game fan, I love all the characters that always pop up in the uh, games. This is my favorite part of it. Oh, like, okay. I love, and I love it when the Street Fighter characters appear because they're my favorite. <laughs> but, um, the but we're there. Zangief right I, there. I love Zangief. Poorly. Poorly. You give me Zangief and chun and I'm happy. But, uh, but were, uh, what were your, were there some characters that you didn't want to, that you can use? Who were your favorites that you had to put in there, that you got in there? Who were some of your favorites? I love Pac-Man, playing Pac-Man as a kid. So yeah. I was like, it has to be, a, it will not feel like a game about video, or a movie about video games if Pac-Man's not in there. Come on, you know, so that was important to me. I'm with you in Street Fighter. I love yeah. I love Zangief yeah. so much. Yeah. <laughs> Such I love, a weird I love character. Runs a book club. I think that's yeah. brilliant. Yeah. Russian yeah. literature. It's, it's so awesome. Yeah. I love that. But what, wait, would you think about like if there's a third movie, which I I personally hope there is? Would you think about expanding into online gaming more as possible as a possible? Definitely. There you go. Yeah. And Slaughter Race was kind of our version of like an online racing game yeah. like GTA or you know and 
Um, there were other games that we, at one point, we had, like, kind of references to, but as the story changes, it's like yeah. they kind of fall out. It would be fun to, you know, to really explore that in earnest, you know. Who came up with the idea for the for the Shank character? I, I love her introduction as well. She was, in the very first draft of the script, there was mm-hmm. a character in an online, or, well, a slaughter race, but it was called mm-hmm. Outlaws of Speed, was <laughs> its first title. It was right. very Twisted Metal-esque. Yeah, yeah. right, exactly. I love that game. And, uh, <laughs> Me too. and that very first draft had, had Vanellope meeting her and remember, she was taking mm-hmm. him web surfing. Like she right, was all right, about right. You, your life can't just be your work. Yeah. We should go mm-hmm. surf the web. And they rode the old dial-up express train. These things go through a lot of weird. There, there, was, an, there, was, an or, there was an orc named Lyle. Oh like, right, from World of Warcraft. From World of Warcraft, that was part of her little crew. Like yeah. so, I'd like to see some of these early drafts. Well, yeah, so I like Craig from oh, Craig's, Craig's list. list. Yeah. He was always just making lists. <laughs> That's right. I so forgot Craig. That should have stayed in. I don't know. Sometimes your darling zoo get killed. <laughs> yeah, but, but Shank went away for a while on like a hmm. couple drafts and then returned probably on our third yeah. screening. So she was born early. Then abandoned, and then <laughs> returned to. Uh, so the, the the iterations of this thing are. <laughs> Craig are didn't make it back in either. No, hey, Craig. Craig, 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 all right, gentlemen. Yeah, was up, but, uh, yeah was but thank you guys. Man. That was a lot of fun. It absolutely was. All right, and special thanks to both Rich Moore and Phil Johnston, as well as Travis Hobson, for another fun collaboration. Ralph Breaks the Internet opens November 21st. We'll take a break right now, and in our next segment, we'll meet a rising musical prodigy as the big show continues. Hey, this is Barry Jenkins, and you're listening to The Big Show, keeping it real with Phil Gordon. People come from far, far, far away to find their dreams, chasing down these medias and comments called dreams in the sky of life. Chasing them, chasing them, chasing them, chasing them. certain hot spots where these medias and stars have a tendency to fall. A legend has it that California is one of those spots. Chris Bauer, welcome to Keeping It Real with Film Gordon, sir. Thank you. How's it going? <laughs> sir, it is going fantastic. Um, Chris is here. We're out here actually at the Middleburg Film Fest. Um, I understood yesterday that you, I'm not sure what they called it, but you did some sort of an event, some concert uh, where you played... Uh, talk a little bit about your involvement in Green Book and specifically what you did here that tied into the promotion of the film. For sure. Um, so I wrote the score for, for the film. So I, the, uh, all the underscores, all my original compositions. And then, um, and then I worked with Mahershala to, um, to learn piano and to, to work on these Don Shirley pieces because I had to re-record all of these original pieces and so I had to transcribe all of Don Shirley's original music because there's no sheet music for any of that stuff and then record it for them to shoot to and then work with Mahershala on how to like how to uh, choreograph correctly on the piano essentially um, and then um, and then uh, 
Uh, outside of that, uh, for, for the festival here, I did a, um, a short Q&A where they asked me to first talk about Don Shirley's music and how he approached playing piano, how he approached uh, his arrangements, because he did very specific, unique arrangements of these jazz standards. Um, then I talked a little bit about my approach to the score. Um, and then they had me do this really silly thing where uh, John, who was doing the interview, asked me to... Um, gave me a prompt as if he were a director a filmmaker and asked me to compose something on the spot that would uh, be the score for that that idea and it was some um, some horror film that had a love story essentially what he what he asked me to write so I did a, an impromptu score for that in the moment so that's pretty much what we did now question is this your first score uh, no, so I, I do. I've done a couple like indie films and a handful yeah. of documentaries. Then I do a show called Dear White People on Netflix, and then um, a show called For the People on on ABC. Nice, uh, Dear White People. I'm very familiar with that oh, show. Oh, sure. Awesome. So you've scored that as well. Yeah, that's all me. Yeah, definitely. Wow. <laughs> yeah. All right. So as it relates to Green Book, when you were asked to or come in and actually do the score, did they actually have to show you like? parts of the film, like rushes of the film, in order to kind of give you an idea of the direction they wanted you to go in? I actually, it was a pretty unique opportunity because um, I actually came in when they were still finishing the script, and so they asked me to come in pretty early, I think because of the fact that I had to um, help them learn all this Don Shirley stuff, all the all the music that was going to go in the film, and so um, I had the opportunity to like be a part of it and, and to have conversations with them about the script and about the story and the importance of certain aspects of it and and um, and to visit set and to to see that whole thing and so by the time I actually got to see something I already had an, a really strong idea of what the world was and so I was already the wheels were already turning about like how I wanted to approach the score essentially and so by the time we actually saw something we were able to do spotting sessions and everything um, that process was actually pretty pretty quick because we already kind of had a good idea of what we wanted to do yeah well, I watched the film, man. I think the, the musical aspect. So, so in your research, I was going to say, in watching the film and watching Mahershala and what he does in the film, how much of that did you have to go back and research Dr. Shirley's work in order to kind of update it? Or did you kind of just do kind of like redo compositions that Dr. Shirley had done? you know, decades right. ago. It was a bit of both. We had to, like, kind of, um, one, liven up the way that it just it sounded in general, like, just the mix of it and the way that, just because, you know, these recordings are from the 60s and so it's a different sound, but also some of the arrangements we changed so that they could make a little bit more sense in the context of the film and so that, you know, some of these songs that might be eight minutes long, we made two minutes long or things like that. Right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was a lot of a lot of listening to his music and as much uh, research as possible. There's no video of him performing at all. Hmm. And so um, there's very little there's very little um, uh, there's very little uh, photos even. Um, so it was mainly just going back to the, the records and listening over and over again to all this stuff to get an idea of who he is. And I think you actually really learn a lot just by listening to his music and the stuff he chose to play because he played like, Negro spirituals. He played songs from these old uh, black musicals from back in the day, and then he also played a lot of jazz standards. But again, had this classical tinge to it, and so I feel like that really gives a snapshot of who he was for sure. So, Chris, for, for folks out there who are just learning who you are, mm -hmm. give us a little background, and, and you're giving me background as well. Give me some background on your interest, how you ended up. You know, because generally it's you, you're probably a music prodigy, you're probably somebody who really loved this instrumentation, you learn how to read the music and you mm -hmm. look at scoring. 
Um, talk a little bit about your backstory on how we got to where we are right now as it relates to you uh, working in this field. This is, sure. this is not a field where... There's a lot of us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Definitely. Uh, well, it's funny. My parents, they're not musicians, but they decided before I was born, they wanted me to play piano for mm-hmm. some strange reason. They used to find piano sampler CDs and put it on my mom's stomach and do that whole thing. And then um, they, they did an incredible job then of finding every teacher in L.A. that could um, that could help. They found all the best, all the best teachers. So it got to a point where I was... Um, you know, after after I found these teachers, talking to different people and realizing that I was at the best at the best schools with the best educators and all of that. Um, so then I went to Juilliard for jazz piano for my undergrad and my masters, and I was like touring with a lot of different artists outside of that space, like um, a lot of jazz musicians and some hip hop people and things like that. And um, but going back to when I was a kid, my my dad was a writer for film and TV, and so. Film was always incredibly important to us, and so we would see like movies as soon as they came out. He would always talk to us about his favorite films and everything. And so, pretty early on, when I was about nine years old, I started to realize that like if I watched Star Wars, I would feel this excitement and all this, all these feelings of, of about the film. But I could also listen to John Williams' score and feel all the same things. I didn't have to watch the movie to like feel that excitement and that same sense of. Um, awe and wonder and nostalgia and all of that and so pretty early on I actually told my parents I wanted to go to school for jazz piano tour with jazz artists put out my own album as a jazz artist and then start to transition into film scoring because I just it was always something I wanted to do since then you know it's funny um I feel the same way um I love listening to scores like I have on my phone you know uh I can't even pronounce his name uh, how once upon a time in the west uh Ennio Morricone. Oh, Morricone oh yeah oh my god oh, yeah. um and listening to different scores John Williams who who's inspired you John Williams is a big one just because of his his approach to melody right. and and also the fact that people forget that he started as a jazz pianist and then became one of the greatest film composers of all time um Thomas Newman is another huge influence uh Terrence Blanchard because I wouldn't be here without him um and uh Jerry Goldsmith, John, James Newton Howard. I think those are some of the big, big influences on me. For sure. What what scores like if you had to do a you know I know on social media they always do this thing ten movies for sure. that changed my life no questions asked. What would be five soundtracks or scores that have, that that you that are the essential scores for you? That's tough. I would say um, probably ooh. Maybe Catch Me If You Can, John Williams. Mm. Uh, just, just the. It's a good one. Yeah, like the jazz influence in that is incredible. Uh, American Beauty, Thomas Newman. Uh, for for Spike, for Terrence, it'd have to either be Twenty Fifth Hour or or um, Do the Right Thing, just because it's a classic. But I think Twenty Fifth Hour might be my favorite of his. Um, and then uh, Alien, Jerry Goldsmith, and. Uh, Maybe like the early Born Identity series, John Powell. Those had a big influence on me when I first started. Yeah. Watch this. Those answers are all great. <laughs> <laughs> this is not a bad story. Yeah, it sounds like that you've done work in this, what we call in the, the television cable streaming space right now. For sure. But I was talking about as it relates to film scoring. This is actually kind of a big one because. This is a movie that clearly is going to 
I'm just letting you know in advance. This is a movie that clearly is going to be one of the nine films that they're going to include for Best Picture this year. <laughs> yeah, that's what everybody's saying, for I, sure. I, I, I'm, yeah. I'm, you're looking at me, I'm like, it's going to happen. <laughs> so, it's, not like, it's not like I'm saying that to like gas you up. Yeah, that's, that's reality. <laughs> yeah for so sure. So you're going to be exposed to an industry full of people who are going to watch this movie <laughs> Understand that the music is a key component of this film. For sure. And then they're going to start looking at you. <laughs> yeah, for which sure. Which means that there's going to be increased opportunity for you. Yeah. Are yeah. you ready for the ride? Oh, yeah. And, and the ride is that six-week kind of award season ride where you're shaking hands with people whose music you admire and John Williams might walk up to you and say, <laughs> hey, man, I was watching. Your stuff is good. Yeah. So how are you feeling about because nobody's an overnight success, man. You put in a lot of work, right? Well, a lot of years to get to where you are, man. So, are you ready for the next step? Man? Yeah, ultimately, yes. I think I think it's it's a. I feel both things. It's funny. I feel like uh, when I first did the the Q and A after the Toronto Film Festival, after the film, I was standing up there with like Peter Fairley, the director, and and Vigo and Mahershala and Linda Carlini, and I and I felt incredibly out of place, but at the same time. I almost got like emotional actually about like how how exciting it was to be in this position because this is something that I've like dreamt about since I was again eight nine years old and so I think that like Sonny I I do a lot of work with Kobe Bryant and he said it uh, best he basically says like if you if you've thought about something and dreamt about something your entire life once you achieve it it shouldn't feel it should feel normal it shouldn't feel weird because you've you've been imagining it this entire time and so that's kind of how I feel is that like I've been waiting for this to happen so I'm not I don't feel I feel ready for it for that reason <laughs> what is the process for you moving forward is it opportunity based is it whoever's coming to approach you you trying to find out or your, your agent finding out what scripts are out there in the pipeline that potentially could use someone of your skill set how does that actually work yeah it's a bit of all of that I think the, one of the biggest things it's all about the relationships that I have. I think the thing that I've figured out most in this industry is that my agent, as great as he is, a lot of it is him just magnifying the relationships I already have. And he kind of told me that from the very beginning. And so most of the con most of the projects that I've been working on are things that because a producer that I knew recommended me or something like that, or, or my agent saw that some producer, some director that I've worked with before is starting a new project. And so he'll kind of go after that project. But other than that, it's, it's, um, yeah, just kind of waiting for somebody to, to maybe see Green Book and, and hear it and feel like that music is something that they've been looking for. So it's really just waiting for that moment to happen. Quincy Jones' daughter just did a documentary on Netflix. Mm -hmm. when, whenever I think about African Americans in the, in the composing space, I always think about Quincy Jones because Q is sure. like over 60 scores that he's put out, man. So he's probably the most prolific African Americans who've ever done this, right? Yep, I totally agree, yeah. Um, so... Listening to his process of understanding how to write music, you know, in his head, how he's hearing certain things, you know, when you're watching a movie and then trying to create music that fits around a certain scene or de depending on who the producer is, that they want you to create your music to create a certain mood. Mm -hmm. um, what is your process? Is it is it a fast process? How do you? Because I mean, I, it's, you can't create. I mean, as a as a film critic, we have to write reviews and mm -hmm. we know. That like every week you got to churn out something new for sure. But music is a different element, or is it a different element? Can you can you, can you just creatively churn out sound like that? Yeah, I think the one thing that um that's where an advantage comes from, like being from the jazz space and coming from that background, because like like for that that event that I did where they asked me to write something on the spot based on this idea, 
like coming up with a melody and doing all that kind of stuff and figuring out how to like basically write a piece in real time is all from my training and experience as being a, a jazz musician because that's how I approach impro- uh, improv in that space. And, um, and so I think it's really helped actually because for the TV stuff, we have to write stuff every single week. And it's like, you know, you have one week to turn around an hour's worth of music or 30 minutes worth of music and that continues for 10 weeks. And so, um, you know... It, and you have to be very quick to um, to adjust and like audible. And so if there's something that I spend a whole day writing and then I send it to the director, he can tell me in five minutes that that didn't work. And I have to come up with something again by tomorrow. Wow. And so in that scenario, I have to put aside any sort of like, you know, uh, need for inspiration and then like all that kind of stuff because you don't have time for that. <laughs> and just, yeah, I just have to like, Man, I got to be inspired. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I can't wait around I can't, for it. I can't, I can't wait to write a film review. I'm not feeling this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know what to say about Halloween. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I just have to go and I think that, yeah, being able to think of melodies pretty quickly and think about how to best arrange them very quickly has been has been the saving grace for me for sure final question man i'm not gonna let you just drop kobe bryant's name and just let it slide through <laughs> you know i do a lot of work with kobe what are you doing with, did you work with kobe on his uh his anime his oscar winning no that was yeah, that was on john that williams one, yeah. yeah that was all john williams but he and he he's been he used john instead of you i know i, I was a little disappointed about That's that about, <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. but he um he uh basically i worked on a documentary about about him for showtime and um and he's really incredibly uh tough when it comes to the selection process because I was recommended by the producer who was a friend of mine but Kobe for for that film if you were the composer or if you were cutting a trailer you had to sit down with him to talk to him about your process and if he felt like you approached your process as serious as he approaches basketball or if you were as passionate about your part of the process as as he is about basketball then he completely trusted you with with your vision and so after that conversation he basically told me, this film is about this for me and these ideas. I want you to think about how that relates to you and how you feel about that. And right from that place, and right from that place, it's going to be great. And from then on, we didn't really have that much uh, back and forth. He kind of just like, yeah, I trust everything that you're doing. Nice. And he's also very um, uh, uh, kind of loyal in that now he's building his film studio. And most of the people that are working on this film studio are people that worked on that project. And so it's myself handling the music and also a friend of mine that's handling a lot of the content and we're working on another documentary that that same team is editing and directing now and so yeah he, he kind of from the from the time we did that showtime thing you know there was something i wrote for his last season that they played at the staples center it was kind of just like anytime he needed music he was like you have to call chris to do it which has been pretty pretty amazing especially growing up in la he was the guy that i watched you know he was i mean michael jordan was obviously like huge when i was a kid but i think my entire childhood was kobe and being in la like it was incredible to finally meet him and and to be working with him like that for sure chris you're making you're making good friends uh this movie that you're in i think is going to elevate your profile in ways that i don't really think you even understand right now um but you know hey man i don't want you to be a stranger man oh not at all since since you working with the mighty ray costa yeah Yeah, we will will definitely talk again. (laughs) For sure. Well, thanks. Thank you for your time, man. Yeah, no, thank you. Success, man. Thank you very much. uh, All right, and this special thanks to Chris Bowers and Green Book opens in theaters on November sixteenth. 
We'll take a break and come back with this week's reviews on Keeping It Real with Film Gordon. Mad Liberator. Death Operator. Rock the data. Amazing flavor. Yo, the way I feel. Sometimes it's too hard to sit still. Things are so passionate, times are so real. Sometimes I try to chill, mellow down, blow a smoke. Welcome back to the show. And this week's reviews are brought to you by thefilmgordon.com. Experience film through the eyes of a true film addict, me. Check out all of our film content at thefilmgordon.com. Now, there's several new films opening in theaters this week, but before we begin, cue the music. So first up this week, we will start with, uh, believe it or not, a, a Nazi World War II horror movie. I know, sounds crazy. But of course, that movie is Overlord, which follows several American soldiers who are dropped behind enemy lines the day before D-Day and discover secret Nazi experiments. Now, the war horror film is directed by Julius Avery and written by Billy Ray and Mark L. Smith and stars Fences, Jovan Adipo, Wyatt Russell, Matilda Olivier, John Magro, uh, and Bokeem Woodbine. What happened then? I found him inside the church. The crowd scrammed me as soon as I hit the ground. Inside the church? How did you get inside the church? Dead bodies. A platoon of soldiers are taking heavy fire in the air on their way to a date with destiny on D-Day. Led by a mysterious Corporal Ford, played by Russell, and from the and from the perspective of a reluctant private voice, a depot, a small group of soldiers trapped behind enemy lines in France have a mission to take down a key Nazi command tower and stop them from conducting secret experiments to create super soldiers. Now, while the war is raging, the Nazis have hunkered down in a small French town, holding the residents hostage and dragging them away for secret experiments. Private Boyce stumbles onto the Nazis' plan, and with the help of Corporal Ford and a young French woman, Chloe, they help to foil their plans. Now, in his first role since his Black Reel Award-winning turn in Fences, Adepo is solid and a rare lead performance in the film in this genre. Produced by J.J. Abrams with a script from Billy Ray, who gave us Shattered, Shattered Glass, Breach, and Captain Phillips, Overlord is a surprisingly effective horror thriller that I can't believe I'm about to say this, but I would highly recommend it. I gave Overlord a B. Really strong film. Liked it a whole lot. Now, also in theaters this weekend is the third incarnation of The Grinch. And of course, this film focuses on Whoville's most famous citizen who hatches a scheme with his trusted canine Max and fat reindeer Fred to ruin Christmas. 
directed by Scott Moser and Yaro Cheney with a screenplay by Michael Lesur and Tommy Swerdlow. The film is based on Dr. Seuss's beloved book, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, and features the voices of Benedict Cumberbatch, Rashida Jones, Kenan Thompson, Cameron Seeley, and Angela Lansbury, and is narrated by Pharrell Williams. You know what? If you want to apologize for something, apologize for that. My eyes are burning. What, don't, don't blame me. Haven't you heard? The mayor wants Christmas to be three times bigger this year. That means three times the lights, three times the eggnog, three times the... Information needed. <laughs> that was a good one. Oh, I get it. This is one of your kidding things. Finally, something you said is actually funny. <laughs> yeah, I do kid a lot, but no, this Christmas is actually... three times bigger. Well, you're just going to have oh, a good dear. time with this, aren't you? Uh, <laughs> i got to say, no, it's no, really no, nice no, to I, see I, you I, laughing. I, sorry, <laughs> I, I can't hear you. I don't speak ridiculous. <laughs> oh, you're a scream. Have a nice life. Goodbye. I'll see you later. For over six decades, audiences have been enthralled with Dr. Seuss's famed story of the commercially green protagonist and the master shade thrower of Whoville, the Grinch. Now, Seuss's book has been adapted into a perennial holiday special and later a live action movie in 2000. This latest version finds our furry green holiday hater back at it again in this saccharine free edition that's long on substance but woefully lacking in heart. The story remains unchanged as the holiday spirit has captured the hearts of all in festive Whoville. Everyone is swept up in the festivities except the Grinch, played by Cumberbatch, or voiced by Cumberbatch, who would sooner slam his head repeatedly into a door rather than celebrate the Yuletide spirit. Forced to go to market uh, after he runs out of food, he painfully attempts to avoid catching everyone's happy feelings. After he encounters the bubbly and optimistic Cindy Lou Who, played by Seely, he figures that the only way to make them feel his misery is to take their Christmas away, which backfires on him as he discovers that while Cindy Lou and him have nothing in common, she would possess just the right amount of spirit to thaw his warm, tiny heart. It's not just that the, the Grinch's heart is tiny, but the entire film, except that it's often said that, why fix something that ain't broke? And this classic was not in need of a cinematic tune-up. Many of the choices that the filmmakers make fall flat, including Cumberbatch's weak voice work as the title character and an equally weak effort from Williams as the narrator and a puzzling remix of the title song made famous in the beloved original television film. None of these changes improve the story, and instead of drawing audiences into the story, it highlights that despite its beautiful presentation, what is painfully lacking is the heart or emotion in the story. Now, with a runtime slightly under 90 minutes, this version seems much longer as they attempt to inflate a story that was told in a third of the time back in 1966. New clearly doesn't equate to better, and audiences would be better served watching the 66 classic, which packs more emotion and enjoyment than this, this expanded holiday pretender. I gave the Grinch us big fat D. Now up next is another film that we saw at uh, the Middleburg Film Fest and it's hitting theaters this week. And of course, that is Boy Erased. And this film follows the son of a of Baptist parents who were, who was forced to take part in a gay conversion therapy program. Now, this film was written for the screen and directed by Joel Edgerton, who also produces with Carrie Kohansky. Robert and Stephen Golan, and the film stars 
Lucas Hedges, Nicole Kidman, Russell Crowe, and Edgerton. You want me to stop with the games? I'll stop with them. I broke up with Chloe. Because... We broke up because I think it's true about me. God help me. I think about men. Jared Emmons has a secret. One that he can't share with his staunch religious father, a Baptist pastor played by Crow, or his delusional mother played by Kidman. Now, struggling with his sexuality, Jared's parents send him to a gay conversion therapy program where he encounters other youth in similar situations under the strict, watchful eye of the head therapist, Victor Sykes, played by Edgerton. Now, over the course of several months, Jared has some eye opening moments of truths which will challenge everything he believes in until he has the courage to live his life on his own term, no matter the consequences. Now, Hedges, who first came to prominence in Manchester by the Sea and was also effective in three billboards in Ebbing, Missouri, has an amazing future playing tortured characters. Now, I'm not this kid's agent, but dude seriously, seriously needs a romantic or light comedy in the worst way. Now, he's the emotional center of this film and everything revolves around his arresting performance. He gives a similar performance in the upcoming film, Ben is Back, which threatens to have the 21-year-old rising star on the verge of being typecast. Now, the supporting performances in this film are riveting and strong, led by both Oscar winners Crow and Kidman, who are fantastic as Jaren's parents, who struggle with their son's choice and how they can support him within their belief system. Performing double duty as both the director and producer, Edgerton also delivers a strong performance as the single-minded conversion head who is determined to straighten Jared and the others out. Now, based on Garrett Conley's memoir, Edgerton has made a truly arresting film that shows how some twist Christ's love into a formidable weapon used to suppress so many others. Boy Erase is a poignant story that shows that every family has challenges and there is no easy answer to any of them. Great screenplay, performances, and film. I gave this film a B. Really like Boy Erase. Really, really strong, strong effort. Well, that's all for us this week. And on behalf of our producer, Jessica Sturgis, and associate producer, Charles Kirkland, as we say in closing, please see something good at the movies. You guys have a wonderful weekend, and we'll see you on the other side. I'm out.
I recognize your false confidence and calculated promises all in your conversation. I hate people that feel entitled. Look at me crazy cause I ain't invite you. Oh, you important, you the moral to the story. You endorsing mother. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.